How are we doing, family? Everybody good? 11 a.m. good? All right, sweet, because the 9 a.m. was kind of decaf, and so I just, you know, preaching needs some help today. Uh, hey, Exodus chapter 25 is where we're at. For those of you who are new, just so you understand, uh, we as a church family are walking through the book of Exodus, right? We've been doing it for a little while, and so we find ourselves uh, somewhere around 19 months in, and uh, we're, in, we're in the middle, we're in the middle of uh, the book of Exodus, what, what a lot of people, uh, when it comes to the Bible, consider to be like the equivalent of flyover country, right? In the Bible, it's just like you don't really spend time there, you just like get through it to get to the next thing. But but we're walking through it uh, because all scriptures, God breathing, God has something really important to say to us through it. And so we find ourselves today picking up in verse 23 of uh, chapter 25. So that's a little kind of where we're at for those of you who, uh, who need some help and need to know that. So, so here's the deal. We're going we're to jump into the text in a minute. But um, before we do, I got a question to ask. Uh, audience participation. So just, uh, just help me out a little bit. How many, just by a show of hands, how many of you... Uh, you, you, have, uh, you have some regrets in life. You have regrets. Anyone? Right? Of course, right? This is something that's true for all of us, right? We, we, have, uh, we have things that we regret. Maybe things we regret that we said. Maybe things we regret that we did. We, we, we all have regrets. Uh, and, and I was thinking about this this week, man. One, one, of, the, uh, one of my biggest regrets um, from childhood because a lot of us probably have a lot of regrets about childhood or whatever. One of my biggest regrets about childhood is that uh, I, was a, uh, I was a terrible, terrible student, okay? I was awful. I was just, just, just really, really bad uh, in school. Now, now, here's the thing. It's not, it's not because I was dumb. I don't think I was dumb. It, it's just I didn't try, right? Didn't care, lacked motivation, uh, didn't really apply myself ever. As a matter of fact, I, I, would, I would probably, I'd probably be what you would classify as a complete and total slacker, okay? Um, matter of fact, it was, it was scary how good I was at being a slacker, right? It was, it was like a gift. It just came naturally to me, right? It was amazing how good I was at, at doing absolutely nothing. And, and I remember, I remember the first time that I ever realized, man, I'm really good at this. Seriously, like, like there was a moment, there was a thing that happened where I was like, man, I'm, I'm incredibly gifted in this area of like being useless. Um, and what it was, was, uh, was I was in fifth grade, and uh, was it was a fifth grade, John H. Hurd Elementary School, Macon, Georgia, and my fifth grade teacher was a lady named Miss Carol, okay, Miss Carol. And Miss um, Carol had this thing, Okay, and everybody knew, everybody going into fifth grade knew that this is what she did. One of the things that she did as a teacher is at the beginning of the school year, she would take the entire class to the school library, right? And, and she would have every kid pick out a book. And the way, the way the thing went is, hey, I'm, you're gonna pick out a book, any book you wanna read, okay? Any book you want. And there's gonna be an hour every single week where Miss Carol was gonna just allow us to read whatever book we wanted to read. For that hour, we could read the book that we checked out of the library, right? We're gonna do this throughout the year, okay? And so she took us, the beginning of the school year, she took us, you know, I picked out a book, whatever. The problem though was this for me. I hated reading, okay? I wasn't a reader. Uh, I didn't like books, didn't like, didn't like doing that at all. So like when every time that hour got there during the school week, um, while my friends were all sitting there at their desk, you know, quietly reading, I would sit there and quietly draw, right? Because I like drawing stuff. And I was just, I was just drawing. I didn't want to read. Um, to me, it wasn't fun at all, right? So, uh, but, but here's, here's, where, here's where it caught up with me is there came this day 
where Miss Carol surprised all of us. She, she, she stood up in front of the class. She said, okay, class, uh, all year long, I've been giving you an hour every week to read the book that you checked out at the beginning of the school year. And today, I'm gonna have each one of you stand up and you're gonna give a verbal book report about what you've read and what you've seen and what you like and what you don't like and what you've learned, what you've read so far in this book. And immediately I thought, my life is over because I've done nothing. Haven't even cracked it open. I didn't even read a page of the book. And now I'm gonna be humiliated in front of all my friends. I gotta stand up in front of my friends and stand up in front of the teacher. And I gotta, I, gotta, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what this book's about, right? So she called the first kid up. Uh, you always have the, uh, you know, always have the volunteer, right? Weird volunteer who always got beat up. And, and the volunteer goes up there and goes first and uh, starts doing his deal. And I remember I was in a panic. I was in this total panic where I'm going, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? Oh man, I'm gonna get in trouble. And, uh, and, and so I, I, in a panic, here's what I did. So I, I dug inside my desk, right? And I, I got the book that I checked out. It was in there because uh, I never took it home, right? And so it was in my desk and, and, and I pulled it out and, and I still remember, I still remember the name of the book to this day because I have PTSD from this experience, okay? So the name of the book, it was called uh, A Castle in the Attic, The Castle in the Attic, okay? Matter of fact, I was on, I, went, I was like curious. So I was like, I wonder if that book's still a thing. Went on Amazon, they had it. I got the cover. That's the cover to the book that I, that I checked out my fifth grade year, right? From the school library, the castle in the attic. And so here's what I did. I, I, I get that book out of my desk and I was like, okay, let me look at the cover. What is this book about? And so I just stared. And then I realized, man, you can learn a lot from a cover of a book about what the book, the plot and everything. And so I'm like, okay, okay. And so I looked at the cover. I took it all in for a second. And then I flipped the book over and I read like the three or four sentence synopsis on the back of what the book was about. And then I was like, okay, what else can I do? So I opened the book up and I, and I looked at all the chapter titles, right? Because all the chapters had, had titles. And I looked at all the chapter titles and I'm like, okay, I got the, I got the picture of the, of, the, of, the, of the book jacket and I got the synopsis on the back and I got the chapter titles and then it was my turn. And I... I, I walked up, I took my book, I walked up to the front of that class and I just made stuff up. Seriously, I, I made it all up. But I made it up with confidence, okay? I'm like, you gotta say it loud and proud like you know what you're talking about. You cannot, you cannot show weakness. You, sh you cannot show fear, right? Miss Carol can smell fear. So I gotta, I gotta be loud and confident. So I went up there with confidence and with conviction, man. And I, and I walked through, I just made stuff up that I had gotten from the cover and, and the, the chapter titles. I was like, uh, my book, my book, the title of my book is it's called The Castle in the Attic by Elizabeth Winthrop. It's about a castle in an attic. <laughs> One day, a little boy named Michael discovers the castle in an attic. But it's not just any ordinary castle, it's a magic castle. And inside this magic castle lives a brave knight named Bill. <laughs> and one day, Michael met Bill and they became friends and they went inside the magic castle to fight an evil dragon named Dragon. And they had the battle with it. And I'm just blah, 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 making stuff up. For five minutes, I just said words, okay? I finish up. I go sit down at my desk. My best friend, Leo, sitting right next to me. He looks over at me and goes, dude, that book sounds awesome. <laughs> Can I borrow that? 
The next, the next day, I show up at school. Miss Carol, turns out she gave us grades based on our verbal reports, family. Guess what I got? A 95. <laughs> For making up nonsense. Think about that, man. I got an A for just making stuff up. And, I'm, and it was, family, I'm telling you, at that moment, it was like an explosion happened in my brain. It was, it was like that part in the movie where somebody discovers an evil superpower. You know what I'm saying? I was like, seriously, I was, I was thinking to myself, I was like, okay, what, this, is, this is crazy. This is, this, is, this is crazy. I can lie and an adult will believe it. I was like, this is amazing to me. Like, like, like I love this country. I can lie and get an A. And like everything in me just wanted to do it again. That's what was crazy, right? Everything in me wanted to do it again. Now, now here's, here's the deal, family. Here's what I'll tell you that story. Isn't this, think about this. Isn't this exactly the way that sin always works? Think about that. So, so what happens is, man, we, we, we decide, hey, dude, I'm gonna live life my way. I'm gonna do things my way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live life according to my own rules, right? And then we do it. But what we discover is we did that and like it worked, or at least we felt like it worked and we experienced some measure of success because of doing life our way and doing our thing. And so we decide, man, man, we're, like we're continually tempted to, to come back to that, to live our lives the way we wanna live our lives, to do things our, our way, right? And so, and so here's the deal, family. Knowing that this is the case, knowing that the human condition is such that we continually attempt to live life according to our own rules and do things our way, even though it's gonna lead eventually over a cliff, knowing that that's the case, what does God do here in the book of Exodus? God, in love and compassion, has given his people 10 commandments. These 10 commandments that are to guide their lives, these 10 commandments that are influence and instruct their lives, God says, listen, listen, I know you're tempted to live life your own way, but, but here's my way. Here's how my people are to live and you're in relationship with me. Here's how you glorify me. Here's the way you live in such a way and lets the whole world know, man, that you're in a relationship with me and this message, don't miss this family, God's message, the Lord's message in giving his people these 10 commandments has been this. His message is to his people, his, his message is, listen, um, my way of living is better than your way of living. That's what God's trying to express to all his people. My way of living is, is far better than, than your way of living. So here's my law and here's my heart and here's what I desire and, and here's what I want, right? And so, and so for those of you who haven't been with us throughout this series, kind of here's where we're at when we get to the book of Exodus chapter 25, right? We're at this really important moment where the Lord has rescued his people from 400 years, almost 400 years of slavery and oppression in Egypt under this evil regime, Pharaoh and his crew, right? And, and they've been crying out to God and God's heard their prayer and in compassion and love, he comes in and drops plagues on them and, and, and he leads these people out under the leadership of Moses, uses Moses to lead these people out of bondage into freedom, because that's God's heart for all of his people, right? Throughout history, he wants to lead his people out of bondage and into freedom. And, and so he's doing this and people find themselves wandering in the middle of the wilderness for a while and then God leads them to a mountain that we all know is Mount Sinai. And it's out Mount Sinai where God says, here's my heart, here's my ways, here's my law, here's what I want you to know. And he drops the 10 commandments on these people and, and, then, he, and then he begins to apply these 10 commandments to everyday life. And then we got to this incredible moment in chapter 24 where, 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 where the Lord says to Moses and a few of the elders of Israel, he says, y'all come up the mountain a little bit further. And they come up the mountain a little bit further and God leads them in a powerful, 
beautiful worship service. And it's at this worship service, at the end of this worship service, where the Lord says to Moses, he said, now Moses, in a little while, I'm gonna send you back down there to those two million Israelites, to my people. I'm gonna send you back down there. And when I do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take up an offering. I want you to pass the baskets, take up an offering, because I have plans to build something incredibly important that is vital to my mission with my people. I want to dwell amongst my people. I wanna build a tabernacle, a place for me to camp with my people who are, who are camped. I wanna be with people. God's heart is for relationship. His heart is to be near to those he loves, right? And so, so, so he begins to unpack these instructions. And if you're here last Sunday, you know that uh, the very first piece of instruction that God gives to Moses in, in regards to the tabernacle is, look, first things first, you're gonna build a box. This fancy golden box with, 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 with angels on the top, these cherubs on the top with their wings focused in, right? And, and in this box, you're gonna put my law, my 10 commandments, these two tablets are gonna go inside so that you never forget what I've said, so that you always remember what I've said, right? And this is what leads us to verse 23, where the Lord begins to give instructions about something else, right? And in chapter 25, and again, man, again, there are all kinds of people who think that these verses are just throwaway verses, man. They have nothing to say to us, but, but that, is a, that is a huge tragedy and mistake, man. L listen to what God says in, in verse 23 as he's given these instructions, beloved. Verse 23. The Lord says to Moses, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these and you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. Now, pay close attention to what's happening here. It's pretty basic, it's pretty simple, it's not real complex, right? We, we, we got God and he's speaking to Moses right here and the Lord says to our boy Moses, he says, hey man, guess what? Here's what I want you to do now, make me a table. I want you to make me a table. I already told you to make me a box. Now I want you to make me a table. A, a, a three foot wide, three foot tall, foot and a half long table. God wants a table. Now here's the question we all need to be asking at this point, family. Why in the world does the Lord of the universe want a table? Or a better question would be, how come, how come the God who is all powerful, how come he's designing furniture now? <laughs> like, it, it seems like he's overqualified for that, amen? Like, like maybe, maybe you should, you know, delegate that. I don't know. I mean, why is God so interested in having a table and in speaking of the details of this table and what this table's supposed to look like and how tall it's gonna be? Why, why is God designing furniture? Well, like, what's up with this? Well, well just so you know, family, the, the answer to that question is actually given us in verse 30, and it's really important, Okay because there's a reason why God's doing this. There's a reason why God is speaking so detailed and saying, here's the table and here, I want you to build this table and here's what it's supposed to look like. You need to do it exactly the way I say it. There's a reason why the Lord's doing this and we find it in verse 30 and here's what it says in verse 30. God says, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. In other words, family, this, this table is 
for bread. That, that's the command. The commandment is, hey, build a table, build a table, because on that table, I want you to put bread. Inside of my tabernacle, you got this fancy table, and that's a bread table. Bring the bread constantly, regularly. Bring me the bread. And that's literally all we're told, which is weird. We're not told anything else about the bread. We're just told, hey, God likes bread. God wants bread, right? Which seems a bit odd. And so we don't know anything about the bread. We're not told anything, at least right here. Right here, all we see is that God apparently wants bread, but we're told in Leviticus, specifically chapter 24, what, what the bread is actually for. And this is fascinating, man. It's really important to get to the heart of what God's doing here, okay? So listen in Leviticus chapter 24, what we're told about this bread that's supposed to go on this fancy table in the tabernacle. It says this, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in a holy place since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. In other words, family, this, this bread, this bread right here that God is commanding his people to always put inside of his tabernacle is specifically a food offering to God. That's what it is. Don't miss this. It's an offering to God, an offering of of food, and, and notice that there's 12 loaves of bread to be on this table. Why 12 loaves? One for every tribe of Israel, right? And so every tribe is represented. Every tribe constantly has a loaf being put on that table with frankincense burning, right? And, and the whole idea here is that this is a food offering to the Lord. It's an offering that they're making to God. Now, here's the obvious question that we all need to ask. What in the world does this mean? I mean, obviously, this is not a part of our worship gatherings in 2020, right? Obviously, we don't do that here, right? It'd be weird seeing people bring in sunbeam, right, and stack them up on tables and lighten some incense. Like, well, what is going on with these instructions? Why does God want a loaf of bread? Or frankly, why does God want 12 loaves of bread? I mean, is God hungry? Does God, is God just a big fan of bread? I mean, is there any, is there any spiritual significance to what's going on here? Because obviously God isn't gonna eat this bread right here, right? I mean, that's, that's crazy that God would need bread, right? God doesn't need anything. And so, 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 so is, there, is there perhaps, listen, is there perhaps some sort of spiritual significance that, that, that's wrapped up in this ceremony of bread constantly being on this table in God's tabernacle? Is it spiritually significant? Or instead, is, is this just kind of like, you know, the ancient equivalent of leaving, you know, cookies out for Santa, right? It's just like, here you go, Lord, right? I mean, what, what, what is the deal? And it's a question we need to ask. I mean, think about it, family. Of all the random things that God could want to go inside of this dwelling place, why in the world does God want bread? Well, here's what you gotta understand, okay? We gotta understand something historically about what's going on right here. Again, to get at the heart of what, what's happening. In the ancient world, bread was, 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 was literally the most basic food in existence, Right? And it's weird, man, because like we live, in, we live in 2012. We live in an age where bread gets a bad rap, okay? 
I mean, we do, man. Everybody's, everybody's running. People are running away from bread, right? Like it's a plague. No bread, right? No, people, it's like bread is an evil, right? But, but here's the thing. In the ancient world, it was totally understood by virtually every culture that, that, that people needed bread. The, mo- the most basic need was like water and bread. Like you need bread in order to survive, that was, the, that was the worldview in the ancient world. There, there was no Atkins diet in Moses' day. Imagine Moses walking around the camp, you know. Hey, Moses, you want some food? No, I'm on the Atkins. You got some lentils, right? I mean, gluten-free restaurants weren't a thing. Bread was what sustained people. Bread was seen as good. Bread was seen as the most basic food in the entire world. Everybody wanted bread. Everybody needed bread. Incidentally, family, this is exactly why in Psalm chapter 104, it says this. I love this passage. Listen to what it says in Psalm 104. This was the, understand, this was the common view of, 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 of bread and, and how people viewed bread in, in this day. In Psalm 104, it says this to, to the Lord. It says, God, you caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Okay, so, so in other words, family, in the ancient world, bread, you know, what, you know what it represented? God's providential care for his people. That's what bread represented in Moses' day. The idea of bread, what bread symbolized was the fact that God cares for you. God's a good provider. God knows what you need and God's gonna give you what you need. Bread was what God's people needed. Bread was what gave these people strength. Bread was essentially what gave these people life. And so understand, consequently, this is the precise reason why centuries after this, man, about 1,500 years after the events of Exodus chapter 25, Jesus is going to be hanging out with his disciples one day, right? And they're asking Jesus, like they're always asking Jesus questions, of course, because they want to learn from Jesus. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is not like anybody they've ever met. And, and so they ask Jesus at some point, hey, will you teach us how to pray? Would you show us how to pray? We've been listening to you pray. We've been watching you pray. Can we figure you have something to teach us about prayer? And so Jesus begins to teach them about prayer. You remember this in the Bible in Matthew, right? Jesus begins in Matthew chapter six to teach his disciples how to pray. Jesus starts leading a, a prayer seminar, Right? It's, it's, like, it's like the conference. You know, if you're ever at a conference, you're like, uh, what breakout are you gonna go to? I'm gonna go to the one where Jesus talks about prayer. Probably the best one, right? And so Jesus in this breakout session starts to talk about prayer and remember what he said to the, to the disciples, his boys who he loved? He said, guys, listen. When you pray to your father in heaven, here's what you should pray. You should, you should call him father or father who art in heaven, right? But teach you how to pray. And there's this point in verse 11, right? Verse 11 of Matthew 6 where he says, give us this day our daily, what family? Bread. Bread. And the idea is, man, when you pray to your father, you ask your father for bread. And it's more than just about food. It's more than just about bread that we know it, like with crust and all that stuff. It's more than just that. Does it include that? Yes. But bread was symbolic of this. When you ask your father, when you ask your father in heaven, would you give us, would you give us our daily bread? What you're actually saying to your father is, Lord, would you give us what we need today? Lord, you know what we need. Would you give us what we need today? So so watch this, family. Here's the point. Don't miss this. Here in Exodus chapter 25, as God is commanding his people to always make sure that fresh bread is on that table in his tabernacle. Listen, the powerful point that God is actually making to his people right here is this. 
He's saying to his people, listen, your needs are always on my mind. I want bread always in my presence. It's literally called the bread of the presence. That's what it's called. I want bread always in my presence, fresh bread, bring in the fresh bread, always in my presence. It's always right there. It's in the tabernacle. It's in my dwelling place. It's right there in front of me. And it's a sign to his people that their needs, what they need is always on God's mind. The Lord's essentially saying to his people here, he says, listen, I know exactly what you need most. And you can always trust me to provide it. God's saying, I know exactly what it takes to satisfy your needs. And the bread, listen family, the bread that always stayed in the presence of God was a powerful reminder to these people that their God is always, always, always a really good and satisfying provider. That's the point, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. See, we're aware of some things today about this bread that these people actually weren't aware of in their day. They, they, they didn't have the knowledge that we have. They, they didn't know the things that we know because here's the deal, beloved. Little, little did these Israelites know that this bread was also pointing to something deeper than just the truth that God is a good provider and God satisfies our needs. It was actually pointing to something else. Beloved, watch this. Little, little did these Israelites know back then that this bread that would always be sitting on that little three-foot-tall table in the presence of God in the tabernacle was actually a powerful promise from God that one day he would actually offer satisfaction to the entire world. See, beloved, this bread actually points to someone. This bread of the presence is actually anticipating somebody, and, and, and here's what's so fascinating, about 1,500 years, again, after the events of Exodus chapter 25, there's gonna be this moment where this really mysterious guy is preaching out in Galilee, right? And his guy's named Jesus, and he's got this huge crowd around him, and the crowd that he's preaching to on this day, they are literally the descendants of Moses and the Israelites. They are descended from the people we're reading about in Exodus chapter 25, right? And while Jesus is preaching to these people, centuries after these events, these people ask Jesus a question, right? And notice the question they ask and notice what Jesus says to him. It's found in John chapter six. Family, listen to this. John chapter six, verse 28 says, then the people said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread. 
I am the bread, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And by the way, did you catch that part? Jesus says, hey, if you, I'm the bread, I'm the bread. You don't want to be looking for no bread. I'm the bread, I'm the, the bread's right here, right? And if you come to me, you will never hunger again. And if you come to me, you will never ever thirst again. And please don't miss this family because just so you know, in that one radical statement right there, Jesus is making a claim that is the most narcissistic, egotistical, and repulsive statement ever made throughout history if he's not God. If Jesus is just a dude, then let's think about the levels of narcissism that are in a statement like that when Jesus looks at these people and says to them, hey, guess what? Only I can satisfy you. No one else can. If Jesus is just a man, that is the most conceited, disturbing statement arguably in the history of all history considering how many people have followed this Jesus. But if Jesus is actually God in the flesh, this is the most compassionate statement ever made. Only I can satisfy you. Come to me. Only I can do it. I wonder, beloved, do you, do you really believe that the only hope you will ever have of actually being truly satisfied and totally satisfied in this life is actually only found in Jesus? Like, do we, do we, re, like, do we really believe that, man? Do, do, do you really believe, beloved, listen, do you really believe that every Every single thing in this world and in this culture that promises to satisfy is actually a fraud. Because, because not only will it not, it can't. You, you know what it is? Every other thing in this world that promises to satisfy, you know what it is? It's like, uh, it's like cotton candy. How many of y'all had cotton candy before? You ever had cotton candy? Hey man, cotton candy's like good to have at the fair and stuff and you know, good to eat cotton candy. Here's the problem though with cotton candy. Like it will never fill you up because it dissolves and turns into nothing, right? Nobody's ever said, no man, I'm, I'm full. I had cotton candy, right? No, like it's a good treat, but it dissolves, man. It, it turns into, it, it, dis, it dissolves, right? It disappears. You need bread, You need substance. Do we really believe that the only way any of us can experience true satisfaction for the soul, which is really the satisfaction that matters, is only found in, in Jesus? Because just so you know, beloved, that is the exact claim that Jesus just made in John chapter six. That's exactly what he said. Like we can argue, we can argue with whether or not Jesus can satisfy or whether or not Jesus cannot satisfy, but we cannot argue about whether or not Jesus said it. That is exactly the claim that he made. I will satisfy, only I can satisfy. Come to me, you'll never hunger again. Come to me, you will never thirst again. Now, so this actually leads us to a really important question, right? And the really important question that it leads us to is, in what way does Jesus satisfy? How exactly does Jesus satisfy a person? And in what way exactly is Jesus like bread for our souls? 
In what way is Jesus different than every other thing in this world that promises to satisfy or seeks to satisfy or, or communicates something, hey, chase me, devote your life to me, and I'll give you something? In what way is Jesus different than all of those things? What does that even mean to say that Jesus satisfied? What does Jesus mean when he says, come to me, you'll never hunger again, and you never thirst again? What does that mean? I will think about it this way. Have, have you ever noticed... Think about this for a second. Have you ever noticed that no matter what's going on in your life, like at a particular moment, no matter what your circumstances are like in a certain season of your life, there is always this crazy temptation to not be content with what you have. Anybody ever notice this at all? Anybody? Is it just me? I mean... Everything in your life can be like amazing. It can be going really well and yet you always have this lingering thing where, where you're like, oh yeah, but, but there's always something I can complain about, right? There's always something I'm not satisfied about or with or I'm discontent. I'm always sort of discontent. And we always have that temptation, don't we? I mean, dude, you can be making plenty of money. You can be totally healthy. Nobody in your family is sick, right? Love life is just awesome, right? Everybody in the family, everybody's good everybody's good. Nobody's mad at you, right? Nobody said anything crazy on Facebook about you. Like your whole life, your whole world is fine. It's fine. Matter of fact, it's good. And yet there's always that crazy lingering temptation to not be happy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just, just earlier this past week, man, I was, I was riding in the car with uh, my, my oldest daughter, who's 13, and um, we're cruising the car, I was taking her guitar practice, and at some point, we're going down I-85, and we're just sort of just sitting there listening to music, whatever. At some point, she says to me this, okay, these are exact words. Uh, she looks over at me, she said, Daddy, you know, I've been thinking, I really miss my childhood. <laughs> I said, do what? She said, I, I do, I really miss my childhood. I said, let me tell you something. You are a child. <laughs> you're in the childhood right now. Like you're living the childhood. How can you miss the thing you're in? Like you're in it. She said, uh, Daddy, I'm a teenager. Duh. I'm 13. I'm a teenager. I said, sweetheart, let me tell you something. Let me teach you something about sociology. Uh, that word teenager was made up. It, it's a made up word. It's a made up social constru construct that was invented by a bunch of people who don't have kids, okay? You are a child. That's what you are. You're a child. She said, uh-huh. I said, uh-huh. I said, I'll prove it to you. She said, okay. I said, all right. Um, can you drive? No. Boom, you're a child. I said, I'll keep going if you want me to. Can you vote? No. Boom, you're a child. You're a child. You're a total child, right? How about this? Can you fill out a W-9? She said, what is a W-9? I said, exactly. You are a child. You are a child, okay? So, 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 it's, so don't tell me you miss your childhood. It's impossible to miss what you have, right? Um, by the way, I didn't say it that angrily. <laughs> here's the point. Like, here's the thing. You know what my daughter was doing? My daughter was just, she, she was just pointing out something that we all actually struggle with from time to time. That's all she was doing, man. She was pointing out something that we all feel from time to time, this crazy tendency to feel discontent and dissatisfied in a particular season of life, no matter what's going on. 
Everything in life can be great, and yet we still have this, this temptation to, to be dissatisfied. By the way, that's why there's a such thing as depressed billionaires. That's why that's a thing. Because we're always, because these things don't satisfy, right? It's, it's like, it's, what does God call them in, in the book of Jeremiah? They're, they're empty cisterns. They're empty wells. They're wells, right? But they don't have water that's actually in them. See, family, here's the deal. Let's be honest. Um, we all want to be happy. Amen? Don't we? Isn't that somewhere on the bucket list for all of us, right? Somewhere? I mean, there's probably nobody in here who's like, no, I got my bucket list all figured out. Number one is be miserable. Yeah, I love it. We all want to be happy. We all want to be content. We all want to feel some measure of satisfaction, right? We want to feel satisfied with life. But here's the problem. Listen, here's the problem, y'all. The problem is that we're all tempted to look for that satisfaction in places where it cannot be found. And we're all tempted. All of us are, man. All of us are tempted to look for satisfaction in, in really destructive and really selfish places. And the reality is this, family, I don't know if you've been paying attention, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, dissatisfaction in life is actually the root cause for all kinds of sin. Dude, if you ever like, you know, think about your sin patterns and the places, the areas where you tend to struggle, what you'll probably find is if, you know, if we're being honest, man, is, is that the root cause for sin and rebellion and disobedience to God tends to be dissatisfaction, right? Why, why do people abuse drugs and alcohol? Dissatisfaction. Why do people cheat on their spouses? Dissatisfaction. Why, why do people look at pornography? Dissatisfaction. Why do people scroll endlessly on their devices and phones, wasting all kinds of time throughout the week? Dissatisfaction, right? Why do people spend a lot of money they don't have until they're in debt up to their eyeballs? Dissatisfaction. Why do people lie and steal and cheat and gossip? Dissatisfaction. And on and on and on it goes, right? And our temptation is always to look for satisfaction in places where that satisfaction cannot be found. And here's the problem, family. Like, here's the, okay, here, here's what's at issue. Here's what we gotta understand. The only way that any of us will ever actually experience or discover true satisfaction is when we go to the source of satisfaction. Like, it's the only way to find it. The only way to experience true satisfaction is actually go to where it is. And what Jesus declares to us in the scriptures, man, is that that source of true satisfaction is always him. That's his claim. And again, man, we can argue the merits of whether or not it's true or not, but like that's exactly what he says consistently. And, and when you think about it, man, this actually makes a lot of sense, okay? So when you look at the Bible, when you look at the scriptures, and when you think about the things that were told in the Bible about Jesus, it actually begins to make a whole lot of sense that Jesus really is the source of true satisfaction. Because think about what Jesus gives to us that no one else and nothing else in this world can ever give. Think about all the... Think about what the Bible says about us. So, so for instance, family, uh, in the Bible, I am told that in Jesus, listen, in Jesus, I have a friend who is always committed to me forever, no matter what, who will never bail on me, never leave me, never forsake me, never, ever. Always right there. I'm hidden with Christ in God. I'm in his grip. He's never bailing. He's never gonna defriend me. He's never gonna say crazy stuff, you know, about me in public to people and slander my name. Like Jesus is never gonna do that. Jesus is a friend who is committed to me and committed to my well-being, what's best for me, always. 
Additionally, in the scriptures, man, I'm told that in Jesus, I have a guardian, I have a protector who will never, ever, ever, ever abandon me, no matter what my parents may do to me. No matter how well some betrayed or abandoned throughout my life. Like in Jesus, I have a guardian protector who will never, ever bail on me, no matter what. Additionally, in Jesus, I have complete security knowing that nothing can ever, ever, ever separate me from the love that is found in him. Not height, not depth, not principality, not bad times, not terrorism, not tragedy. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Jesus. I thought I'd get at least more than three amens from that. That's good news, man. Nothing can separate us from his love, man. Ever. The Bible tells me that in Jesus, I have an identity and a purpose that goes far beyond just what I do for a living or what I accomplish in this world. Which, by the way, I should get an amen from everybody in here who ever hates their job. Amen, right? I have a purpose. I have an identity. It's not about that stupid job, right? I mean... The Bible tells me that in Jesus, I have total assurance that even if I get sick and even if I get cancer and even if that cancer is terminal and even if I get some other disease and even if I die, none of those things has the ultimate claim over me because Jesus is my bread of life. Think about all of the things that Jesus gives and provides that no one else and nothing else can. No wonder Jesus says, satisfaction's right here. And it's only right here. And on and on and on it goes. I wonder, beloved, are you spending most of your days doing what Solomon talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes, just chasing after the wind, right? It's just this, just, it's this fruitless, vain effort of seeking to be satisfied in places that, that can't ever provide satisfaction. Is that you or instead... Instead, do you actually believe, do you actually believe that Jesus really is the bread of life? He is satisfaction personified. So please don't miss what's happening here, family. This bread right here in Exodus chapter 25, it is far more than just a loaf of Sarah Lee. And God say, hey, I need that bread. Bring me that bread. I really like bread. It's far more than that. Listen, family, you know what this bread is? This bread is a powerful foretaste of Jesus. It's anticipating the advent of the one who actually will satisfy. But that's not where it stops. Pay close attention to what God says next. Look at verse 31, family, check this out. The Lord says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these 
these utensils out of a talent of pure gold and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Now, odds are you've never had a quiet time out of that passage of scripture. Nobody ever shows up to coffee with a friend and goes, man, I'm just really blessed today. Why? Well, I just had some really good time with the Lord in Exodus 25 looking at the lamp. Again, this, this tends to be the biblical equivalent of flyover country, right? Most people are like, these are just throwaway verses. But they're not. They're so not. So follow me for a second, family. Not only does God want a table that holds bread to go inside of his tabernacle, his dwelling place, right? This tent in the desert that's in the middle of all the other tents of the Israelites. Not only does God want a table, but in addition to that, he also wants a lampstand. He wants a lampstand. Why? Why does he want a lampstand? He wants a lampstand. He, not only does he want a lampstand, he tells them exactly how it's supposed to look. Listen to me and do it exactly how I say. Here's how the lamp's supposed to look. And did you follow the description, by the way? Did you pay attention to the description? He's like, I want a lampstand, and you're going to have the cent. It's going to be made out of gold, and so you're going to have this center bar coming up, and then you're going to have, I want branches to come out of each side, three on each side. So three branches over here, three branches over here, seven lamps on top. So like if you've ever seen a menorah, It's the reason it looks like that. God says, Here, here's the way I want this lamp to look. Here's the description. Here's how I want it. So why? Again, we have to ask these questions. Why? Why, why does God even need a lamp? I mean, by description, God can probably see in the dark. Amen? I mean, he probably has pretty good night vision. I mean, why, why, does, why does God need a lamp? What is the lamp for? All right, well, so there's something real practical we need to understand here, okay? And, and here, here it is. And, and we're gonna see this uh, in, in more detail next Sunday when we actually get, we finally get into the tabernacle, what the tabernacle is and, and God's instructions there, right? But one of the practical things we need to understand here is that there were actually, uh, this, this tabernacle that God's building is gonna be four layers thick. Follow this. This tent, so this tent is like something you get from REI and you can sort of see, you know, outside. It's four layers thick. We're told that the, the first layer, the inside layer was made of fine linen. Then the two middle layers are actually made from tanned ram skins. And then the outside layer was actually made from skin of sea cows because it was waterproof, right? You see how boss God is? Like he's really good at designing stuff, right? So he puts the waterproof sea cow skin on the outside to make sure there's no water damage and it, and it can hold up and everything else, right? So it's four layers thick, which honestly, family, just means it's stinking dark in there. We're talking pitch black. We're talking no sunlight at all can pierce through these four layers, three of which happen to be like skin, thick skin, right? No light whatsoever. So a priest, if a priest were to walk inside of that tabernacle, he would be completely swallowed up by all the darkness. It is absolutely impossible, impossible for light to penetrate this tent, which means there's no light inside. It is utter darkness inside the tabernacle, unless, of course, God can cause his light to shine in the darkness. This sound familiar at all? So here's the deal, family. At this point, the question for all of us becomes, what's... So what's the point of these verses? Is it just for me to know like what the tabernacle's made of and, and, and just for me to know that, 
that there's a lamp inside of it? Like, what's the point? Is there any actual life application to me? I mean, what is the, listen, what do, what do I, a guy living in 2020, who's, you know, spending a lot of time each day fighting traffic on I-85, what do I have to glean from that? What, what, what in the world am I supposed to get out of this? What do I care if a tabernacle has a lamp? Like, whoop do whoa I don't care. What's, what's the point? It's kind of like this. Okay, so, um, so, so back a few weekends ago, we had a, a women's conference up in here, Woven. How many of y'all ladies were at Woven a few weekends ago? Let me hear you. Whenever you're ready. <laughs> right. You, you got, okay, that's all right. You did better than nine. Um, so you were really excited a few weekends ago when it happened though, okay? So, um, so, so here's the deal. At that women's conference, so, so I, was, I, was, I sort of was down here helping out and one of the things they had me doing was uh, helping to park cars, right? Helping to direct traffic, which by the way, just shows you how desperate they were for volunteers to put me in the parking lot, right? So uh, I, no clue what I'm doing. So I'm out there trying to park the cars and trying to do some stuff with a couple other volunteers. And at some point, they were doing a session in here, right? And, and the ladies that were here, you were, you were studying the Bible and singing to the Lord and all that stuff. And a session was going on. And during that session, I decide, well, I'm gonna walk up to the edge of the uh, driveway of the church right here up on Maddox Road because I know we've got some cones out there. Our, tra our orange traffic cones are still out there that we were using to direct traffic and sort of uh, help with the traffic flow, all that stuff. And so I'm gonna go get them and bring them in uh, to storage, right? So I walk up the driveway here that, that we all come down, right, to come to church. I walk up this driveway here to the corner and as I get up there, I see something weird because like the cones, all the orange cones are like stacked up there, but there's some random truck parked right next to them. And I'm like, who is that? What's going on? And then, and then a guy, this, this guy jumps out of the driver's seat and he comes around to where the cones are. He doesn't see me at all. He comes around to where the cones are, picks up the stack of cones and throws them in the back of his truck. Then he goes around to get back inside of the truck, the driver's seat, right? And then, and then he, he, he cranks it up and, and he starts to go. And at that point, I'm feeling all this rage, man. I'm feeling all this anger because he's like still in God's cones, I'm like, that's not okay. So he, so he cranks up the car, he starts to move and I just, I didn't know what else to do. So, so with the top of my lungs, I scream, man, you better stop. And, and he did. And I thought to myself, wait, he was big. <laughs> oh man, should have prayed about this. <laughs> um, so he gets out of the car, he gets out of the truck and he comes around to the back of the truck and he goes, what do you want? I said, I want you to give us our cones back. Those are our cones. He said, oh man, my bad, I thought it was garbage. I said, nope, it's cones. <laughs> Wasn't very eloquent, he was, he was big. Um, he reaches in the back of his truck, doesn't hand them to me, just throws them on the ground. Gets back in his truck, starts to drive away. And I just sat there staring at him, right? Staring at the truck as it drove away. And then finally, when the truck got uh, around the corner, I said, that's what I thought. <laughs> so brave. Um, here, here's what I tell you the story. So, 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 so there's some people, and maybe we're all guilty of this. You ever been guilty of this stuff? I'm guilty of it. That there's some people who view certain portions of the Bible as, it's, it's, it's just sort of, 
it's just for garbage, right? We would never say that, but we sort of treat it like it's thrown away. We treat it like it's just, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the important pieces. We treat scripture sometimes like you got all the important things, like that flood deal that was pretty important and the whole Abram, Abram tries to, you know, sacrifice his kid, that, that whole deal, right? And then Jesus, of course, right? But, but everything else in between we kind of see as, you know, plot development. It's like B-roll in a video, right? It's like the stuff that's not important at all. But, but understand, family, that, that is a tragedy, like to view this portion of scripture like just throwaway verses, it's, it's a tragedy because what? I'm telling you, it's in passages like this where we begin to see the full depth of God's story of redemption. It's in passages like this where the gospel takes on another layer to it, another layer of beauty to it because we see that the Lord has always known exactly what he is doing. Follow this family, look at this. Here in Exodus 25, consider this. Here in Exodus 25, God is commanding his people to make sure that the inside of this tabernacle isn't dark, but instead that light penetrates the darkness, that it is flooded. This dark space that's pitch black somehow is flooded with light. That's what God commands. I want light in that darkness. And centuries after this, Again, beloved, a mysterious man in Galilee named Jesus, who, by the way, claimed to be the one and only son of this very same God who was designing this tabernacle, claimed to be the one and only son of this very same God who said, I want you to make sure you build this lamp and you put this lamp in that darkness. This guy, Jesus, who claimed to be the son of God, would stand up in front of a crowd of people and he would say this in John chapter eight and verse 12. Watch it, family. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And listen, family, just like that golden lampstand in this shadowy tabernacle, guess what? Jesus would come into this dark world to be a light that shines and pierces into the darkness. Think how... Think of how dark this world would be without Jesus. Think about how dark and bleak this world would be if Jesus had not pierced the darkness. We'd have no clue what to do. We'd have no clue what truth is. We'd certainly just be making a lot of stuff up and we'd be, we'd be desperate, man. We'd be desperate looking for an answer to uh, the reason for living and, and our hope in, in, this, in this world. But Jesus comes into the darkness. Jesus shines like a light, like that lampstand in the tabernacle, piercing that darkness. Jesus pierces the darkness of this world and it totally makes sense. Think about the light. Think about all the light that Jesus shines, beloved. Jesus shines light on our sin helping us to understand how desperate we actually are for a savior. Jesus shines light on our hope, helping us to have the confidence and to know with full assurance that there really is more to this life than just this life. Jesus shines light on a better way to live by showing us in the gospels what it actually looks like to love and to forgive and to pray and to be generous and to suffer well and to obey God's commands and on and on and on. That's all he does is shine light. That's all he does is to illuminate this dark world and illuminate our dark lives. I wonder, beloved, is Jesus your light? Consider that question for a second. 
is Jesus your light? Now listen, I did not ask, are you interested in Jesus? Do you think Jesus is cool? Do you think Jesus is somewhat interesting? Are you a fan of the teachings of Jesus? Do you, do you think Jesus is great? I didn't ask that. I, I, is Jesus your light? You say, well, I don't even know what that means. Well, well let me explain it for you. Another, another way to ask that question would be this right here. Where do you go when you need answers? Life's confusing, things are chaotic, circumstances are nuts. Where do you go when you need answers? Where do you go for wisdom when you have no clue? Where do you turn when you don't know what to do and life is completely confusing? Who do you call? Think about this. Who do you call when you feel all alone? Is Jesus your light? Now, once you see the point of what's happening here, here's why we're, here's why we're preaching through this. Here's why we're actually spending time on, on things like bread and a lamp. I want you to pay attention to how, how in control God actually is family, because this tells us something about the character and the nature of God here. Listen, here's the point of all this. Here in Exodus chapter 25, understand, God is doing far more than just playing architect. Man, understand, God is doing way more than just, hey, I've, I've just, I just wanted to draw a blueprint, so I thought that'd be interesting to do for a while, so here's a blueprint of some stuff, and I want you to build this, and we'll see how it turns out. This is far more than just designing a blueprint for a fancy tent family. Listen, listen, here's what's actually happened. Here in Exodus chapter 25, think about this, family. You know what God's doing? Here's what God's doing. God is actually making sure that when Jesus finally shows up on the scene, guess what? His people are actually going to recognize him. That's how in control and sovereign God is. It's redemptive history. God's anticipating moving things towards the Savior, His only Son, Jesus. I, I think about um, <clears throat> going off the notes here, so this could be a total disaster, but Think about, think about that. Remember that story in Luke chapter 24 after Jesus is, is risen from the grave, right? After, after the resurrection and we're told that it's one of the reasons that this church is called Emmaus Church. This church is called Emmaus Church if you didn't happen to see the name as you walked in. Um, one of the reasons why this church is called Emmaus Church is because of that story really in Luke chapter 24. And Jesus is risen from the grave, right? But we're told this crazy story that is so unlike any other story we read in the, in the Gospels, man, because we're told that Jesus, uh, he comes alongside two of his disciple guys who were fans and followers of his, right? And he, they're walking on the road and they're, they're bummed out, man, because Jesus died. Jesus was crucified, totally depressed and bummed out. And Jesus, we're told, comes alongside of him. Somehow he disguises himself. We don't know if he's wearing big old, you know, Jedi cloak or whatever, or somehow, we don't know how he disguised himself. We just know that somehow Jesus disguises himself, scurries up next to these brothers and starts talking to them. And he's like, hey guys, how you doing? And they're like, bad. He's like, why are you so upset? They're like, 
didn't you hear about everything that just happened in Jerusalem over the past couple days? And I love how Jesus just like dogs him and, and toys with him, man. Because Jesus goes, no, what happened? They're like, well, there's this guy and we thought he was the Christ and, we, and then they killed him and they murdered him and blah, blah, blah. And then Jesus says, don't you know that these things had to occur? And then we're told, listen, listen, we're told in Luke chapter 24 that at that moment, Jesus begins to explain to them from Moses through the prophets, the scriptures in the Old Testament concerning him. In other words, Jesus like, hey guys, remember what Moses said? Remember in Exodus? Remember the, and I have to wonder if there was a moment in that sermon. By the way, in, in the history of the universe, if I could have ever been present for any sermon ever preached, it'd be that one right there. And you know the thing I love most about it? We're told that the walk from where they were to where they were going in Emmaus was seven miles and he preached the whole time. That's a long sermon, man. <laughs> Stop complaining about me, right? Preached the entire time from Moses through the prophets, the scriptures concerning him. And I got to wonder if there was a moment where Jesus was like, hey guys, remember that bread? Remember that lamp? Beloved, our God knows exactly what he's doing. And Jesus, just so you know, Jesus is the bread that truly satisfies. And Jesus is the light that always shows the way. Let me pray for you, family. Let me pray for you. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to rejoice, man. We're going to... For those of you who are new, these tables are set up around the room with... Communion elements, man, every single Sunday here at Emmaus, we participate in the Lord's Supper, a time of remembering what Jesus accomplished for us on that cross. Jesus took that bread and said, the night when he was gonna be arrested, he betrayed, he took that bread and said, this bread represents my body, which is gonna be broken for you. And he lifts up the cup, he says, this cup represents the blood that's gonna be shed for the sins of many. Take it and remember me, remember me. So again, Jesus talks about bread and we're reminded that it's the bread that sustains, that Jesus is the bread of life, the one who satisfies our hungry souls because he's the only one who can, because he's the only one who knows how to satisfy our hungry souls. And so in the year 2020, God's people still those saved by grace, those, those whose hope is in Jesus still walk up to a table and do something with bread and remember Christ. Remember that the bread of life who brings life to everyone who believes in him has come into the world. And the light of the world who gives light to all who believe in him has come into the world. So Jesus, we love you. Jesus, would we thank you? Would we be, be grateful for you? I pray for the areas in our lives, Lord. Each one of us know what it's like to run away from you and to look for satisfaction, peace, contentment, some measure of joy or happiness in, in things that cannot give satisfaction. We're all continually tempted to do that. 
Holy Spirit, would you shine light in those areas of our lives today and lead us in your kindness to repentance? It's all about you, Jesus. We love you and I pray all these things through your matchless name. Amen. So y'all gonna have a seat. We got a few questions that came in during the sermon. So just wanna uh, kind of handle those like we do at the end of the one and just kind of see uh, what nonsense we can get into. Uh, how can we properly interpret the purpose of the bread in a way that avoids falling into the prosperity gospel? Um, I'm not, I'm not 100% certain I understand this question, but, but for those of you who, who maybe don't know, you know, talk about prosperity gospel, what that means is uh, there's, a, uh, there's a teaching out there uh, that totally perverts and misinterprets the Bible and essentially says that God's desire is for everybody to be rich and everybody to have lots of stuff. And uh, if you, we, we give to God in order to get from God and we sow seeds of faith with our money so that God will open up the storehouse of blessing and give us more bling and all that stuff. And uh, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. I mean, we worship, uh, we worship Jesus who didn't even have a pillow to lay his head on, right? And, and you know, had basically nothing and arguably was homeless. And, and so uh, that's, not, that's, that's not the gospel at all. So I'm not, I'm not certain if this question is saying, hey, because the table was made of gold and all that stuff, or if it's, uh, I'm not sure what, what the question is. I do, can I, I'd like to speak to the prosperity gospel in general and just say, um, that the problem with it is it basically takes verses completely out of context and like reinterprets them, okay? Not even, not even just misinterpreting, but like reinterpreting the Bible, reinterpreting everything, right? There are people out there who actually make the claim that Jesus was in fact a millionaire, but just, you know, keeps it really well hidden in the Bible, right? It's nonsense, it's absolute nonsense. So I would say beware of the prosperity gospel, which is actually no gospel at all. It is not good news, it's terrible news. Um, I mean, if, let's be honest, man. If God's ultimate desire for our lives is that we have uh, lots of riches and lots of things and that's it, uh, then, I mean, that's, that's, that's not real good news, man, right? Because, I mean, ultimately, uh, what, what I've seen and what I've experienced, man, even just from going to places like Uganda, is that some of the most joyful people in the world are the people who have nothing in terms of possessions, but have everything in terms of faith. And so, uh, anyway, for what it's worth, for what it's worth. If, if I didn't, if I, did, if I don't know what you're saying, if you want to come to me later and ask me that question and uh, help me, that, that'd be awesome. Uh, next question was, how should I respond when I don't feel God's presence? Uh, read the Bible. And I know that sounds like a joke, but it's really not. And what, here, here's what I do. By the way, hopefully it doesn't shock you to know that there are moments when I don't feel God's presence, right? There are moments when I wake up or have a day when I'm like, Lord, hello. What I appreciate, here's, here's, I, think there's a, I think there's a misunderstanding. I think one of the misunderstandings we have is that oftentimes when we feel like, and, and, and I would have to like have a clarifying conversation about what it means to actually feel God's presence. But if we're saying that you have a, you have a day where you maybe don't feel like your relationship with the Lord is very strong or that you're not really uh, experiencing the peace of God or, 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 or your faith is struggling, maybe, maybe that's how you would term, uh, say it. If that's what we're talking about, then I want to tell you, Ben, I have plenty of days like that, plenty of days. And, 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 and what I want you to understand is... Um, that to have a moment where you feel like uh, you don't feel God's presence, I want you to understand that's not, how do I say this? Um, God's not looking at you going, what's your problem? Why don't you feel my presence, pagan, 
right? That's not what's happening. In fact, what I love about the Lord is that the same God that we worship and that we're singing to is the same God who let stuff like this in the Bible. This is from David, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Anybody ever prayed and felt like God wasn't listening? So did David. And God left that in the Bible. So when I say read the Bible, what I, on days when I'm struggling, I, I wanna read stuff like that. I wanna read stuff from real people who, who were experiencing really raw times and were honest with the Lord. And God's big enough to handle your honesty. Matter of fact, God already knows what's in here anyway, so you may as well tell him. He already knows. It's the same God who in the book of Jeremiah, you know what he let, you know what he let Jeremiah put in the Bible? There's a moment where Jeremiah says, curse be the day I was born. The guy who came to my, mom, came to my uh, parents or came to my dad and said, it's a boy, let him be cursed. That's a guy having a bad day, amen? Not a whole lot of people have that as their life verse, right? What's your life verse? Curse be the day I was born, I hate my life. But it's in the Bible, how, how amazing is that, that that's the God who's big enough to let, you know why God lets stuff like that in the Bible? Because God knows we struggle with that from time to time. And he wants to minister to us. He wants to meet us where we are. That's what good shepherds do. They meet people where they are, right? And so anyway, read the Bible. I would also say, man, you've got plenty of pastors and people here at this church who love you. And if you're really struggling to a you know, depressing degree, we'd love to meet with you and counsel you and talk to you. That's what we're here for. So hopefully that helps. And then finally, did you ever read that book? I, 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 I didn't. Matter of fact, I th- I'm pretty sure I lost it. I think I lost it. And, and so like to this day, I don't know what the interest is at Hurt Elementary School, but matter of fact, I think I, I maybe didn't even graduate sixth grade because I lost the book. I, I may not even be valid like right now. My education. Um, no, I never read that book. I did though. Here's my deal. Okay, here's my deal. Now I love to read. Like I love to read. Like I, I want to read all the time. The problem is in sixth grade. Here's what I don't like. I don't like when people tell me what I have to read. I got that rebellious sinful thing going on, right? It's like, how dare you tell me to read a book? Um, anyway, family, let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're so good to us, that you would reveal yourself to us in bread and in a lamp. Uh, God, thank you for that. Would our, would our faith be strengthened? Uh, Lord, would our hope and trust be in you? Empower us with your Holy Spirit and all the people of Emmaus Church with your Holy Spirit this week to live for you and shine as lights for you. And I pray it all through Christ. Amen. Love you, family.